Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Charles Elton. Charles was a designer and editor in publishing before he became a director of the Curtis Brown Literary Agency. He's worked in television and been an executive producer on drama for ITV. He has also written several novels, including Mr. Toppet, but I'm talking to him today because of his new book, a biography of one of the most mysterious, dark and interesting figures to come out of the new Hollywood 1970s moment of great creativity and originality in American cinema. Michael Cimino with his new book, Cimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate and The Price of a Vision. It's going to be a truly interesting conversation about a fascinating subject uh, if you like it please remember to like share subscribe do all those things you have to do in order to make this podcast the growing success that it has become thanks very much to you dear listener uh, you can follow me on twitter if you like at dr john t d-r-j-o-n-t-y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation I mean, you know, really, I'm not a biographer. I mean, I've written a biography. I'm, you know, I'm really a drama producer and I've written a couple of novels. And what was nice about this, it was sort of like a novel. 
Absolutely, and what what a character! What a what a character amazing, to have at the centre. Amazing. How did you how did you sort of fix on Chimino as a as a subject? Well, I I to be honest, I couldn't think of an idea for a novel, and a friend of mine suggested Chimino, and I'm a big, I'm a total showbiz junkie it is literally the only thing I know anything about I can't do kings and queens of England and you know when I was 10 I was seeing like 100 films I've seen everything and I have one of those sort of Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man kind of memory so I can reel off people's credits etc so of course I knew a lot about Chimino but I didn't know certainly as much as I knew when I finished it Um, And I just knew he was a really interesting figure because there's nobody else like him. I'm not saying he is the greatest director in the world, but he's certainly, for me, probably the most interesting director in the world because of his life and his work. And so I just began, you know, I went out to LA for a while and got in touch with people. Nearly everybody was happy to talk. And so I just sort of fiddled around with it for a bit. And then sort of just I got into it and really started doing it. And I went to L.A., you know, three, four times into New York where there were people. And what it essentially meant was that I hung out in L.A. talking about movies to movie people, which is literally my favorite thing in the world. And I met, you know, I met Roger, had dinner with Roger Corman you know, James Harris, who did those early Kubrick things like the Lita and Paths of Glory, Al Ruddy, who produced The Godfather. It was just, I had such a good time doing it. And I wish I had a kind of backstory of my pain and what a nightmare it was, but not at all. <laughs> all those lunches. Oh. Yes, it was fabulous. <laughs> did, your, did your life ever sort of brush against Chaminos while no, he was alive? No, not at all. Well, no, I mean, the only... The first person I interviewed, who's, who's in the book, I mean, I had two weird strokes of luck, essentially. The mother of one of my oldest friends, Eleanor Fazan, choreographed the Oxford round the tree dance thing. And when I was an agent, which I, was, I used to represent it, so I knew her really well. So, she, so that was one amazing stroke of luck. And the other one, bizarrely, my brother-in-law wrote Desperate Hours and he, he has a writing partner. And when I saw Larry, called Lawrence Connor, who wrote the recent Sopranos, not very good Sopranos movie with David Chase, and I adore him. And I got, the, so we're having dinner and he said, well, the trouble is I don't remember anything at all. And, but he put me in touch with his writing partner who co-wrote Desperate Hours with him and he remembered everything. So that was all right. But that seemed two amazing strokes of luck. And the, in terms of how I got into the book, I always sort of thought I couldn't do it unless I tracked down Joanne Corelli. Joanne Corelli was with Cimino for 50 years in some form or other, and she produced Heaven's Gate. Mm. And she knew everything, obviously. She was with him for 50 years, from about 1967 till when he died in 2016. However, she had never talked, ever. And in fact, Eleanor Fazan, the choreographer of the um, 
round the tree sequence. To my astonishment, she really liked Joanne and Michael because many, many people didn't, particularly Joanne. People in Hollywood really don't like her. And I'd written to her three, four, five times. I found various addresses and I kind of letter bombed her. No answer. And when I discovered that Eleanor Fazan had been friends with her and Michael and Joanne had stayed in Eleanor's flat, and I wrote to Joanne, and so, so I wrote to Joanne and said, I'm a friend of Eleanor Fazan, you'll remember, blah, 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 blah. And to my amazement, she called me. And we talked for about an hour. She began by saying, she has a very kind of New York Italian voice. I'm not telling you anything. But we talked for an hour and I was going to be in New York next week, the week after. And she agreed to have dinner with me. And we formed an odd kind of relationship. Um, but we ha I had dinner with her six or seven times over 18 months. And each one lasted till the waiters were putting the chairs on the table. But she did stick to her thing, which is I'm not telling you anything. But of course, she did tell me things. Mm. Um, but she certainly wouldn't go into personal details. She believes that she's totally the keeper of the flame. She believes that everything that has ever been written about Chimino is a lie. But we, we had a kind of cautious relationship. And actually, though she is a very abrasive, tough, frankly, quite terrifying woman, she's like 80, I grew fond of her. And I think in her way, she grew fond of me. And, you know, she would call me like out of the blue. She'd call me in London where I live um, and ramble for about an hour. But so, as I say, it isn't exactly that she told me that much, but just she's a legendary, mysterious figure. And just by being with her, I kind of, I guess, like osmosis. And so once I got to her, then, then I kind of went on with it. And I made the decision that I wouldn't bother with the actors. I did talk to some of like three or four actors, like John Savage, who, you know, was in Evans Gate, the one who became paraplegic. Because A, it's always a nightmare. You have to go to their agents and they're free or they're not free or they will talk or they won't talk or they say they'll talk and then they don't talk. And also in my, having worked with actors all my life, they never actually say anything that's very interesting. They always love the director. Mm. And the people who were absolute gold dust were the secretaries, the assistants, particularly the editorial assistants, or the editors too, because I talked to some of his editors, because they sat in a darkened room with him for a year. Mm. They know where the bodies are buried. And mm. I found when I went to Kalispell, where they shot um, Heaven's Gate, I found the person who had driven him for seven months. They are the people who know stuff. And that is where I got, you know, all the interesting stuff from. I mean, obviously, I knew he was a fascinating figure. But more than that, I've always thought that failure is more interesting than success. And I don't quite mean he failed, because obviously he didn't fail with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot and Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate, though I think he failed with the other films. I mean, 
failure for your life to live up to your expectations. And, you know, failure is instructive, success is kind of inspirational. But, you know, in terms of people one might write about, I mean, their lives rather than a straight film book. I mean, Steven Spielberg, I'm not saying he isn't a great filmmaker, but he's not actually that interesting as a person. Mm. Ditto, you know, do you want to read a biography of Sidney Pollock? I mean, you probably do because you're a film buff and I want to read a biography of Sidney <laughs> Pollock. But you know what I mean? It isn't, there's nothing there really except their films. Okay, they may have had a divorce or two or whatever, but it's, that isn't necessarily interesting. And I, 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 I loved sort of like Orson Welles, though of course Orson Welles is unlike anybody else and a greater filmmaker, that thing about both of them had the world in their hands after Citizen Kane and after Deer Hunter, and they let it slip away. And I mean, you could argue that Chimino let it slip away because it done Heaven's Gate, which was such a giant flop. But even Orson Welles, you know, with Magnificent Ambersons, you know, he, he went off to Brazil to shoot that Everything is True or whatever, that sort of documentary about the carnival in Rio. And he just sort of assumed that his cut would be fine because nobody would tamper with it. And they did tamper with it. So he didn't let his, it slip through his exactly the same way, but he took his eye off the ball and nothing was ever the same again. You know, he never had really any power. I mean, he had kind of power when he did Othello and Chimes of Midnight. So he had power, but he didn't have any money, which is a problem, which is why they were shot, you know, like scenes were shot five years apart. I'm not saying they're not great movies, but he never really had power. And you see Orson Welles, who, is the most incredible character but you see him at, you can get it on youtube you can see at the end of his life doing those gallo wine commercials mm. and there's one particular one where, the, where a camera is running on set and he is completely pissed trying to do the thing and it's sad and tremino's later life was sad in a different kind of way but just as sad and I think, and and maybe I'm, I don't accentuate the positive. I just think the positive is so much less interesting than the negative. I suppose. <laughs> I had a friend who um, who knew Chimino called uh, Massimo Benvenu. He's, uh, I think, he works in Amsterdam now at the yeah. Ice. I, and he told me that he um, that Chimino told him. I I learned how to make movies by making my my you know my first two movies well my my second two movies really and I learned how to make a movie and then they wouldn't let me make a movie for yeah. the rest of my life you know that was the of course like anything Tremino said that's not totally true I mean where <laughs> he learned how to make movies um, the commercials he did in New York you can get them on YouTube there's three or four so that's where that's where he learned it but what is true is that he wasn't, he wasn't that interested in movies. He wasn't a movie brat, you know, like De Palma and Scorsese and Spielberg, who hung around and watched old Jean-Luc Godard movies and knew everything and understood, you know, Abel Gans and the silent movies. He wasn't like that at all. I, I'm not saying that means 
he, he can't be a great filmmaker, but he came from a different kind of tradition and he was always an outsider. I mean, partly because his, of his kind of spiky personality, he was always an outsider. That, that personality is something that I, I, I guess, I guess we all know in, in, from, from, you know, various sort of uh, portrayals of him sort of having shouting fits and, and yeah. you know, behaving badly on set and everything. But one of the, one of the things I've wanted to do, I mean, Final Cut, which you will know and lots of mm. people will know, it is a great gossipy book and it is pure pleasure reading it. But as I say in my book, it's, I think Stephen Bach was a tarnished figure and he has a slant on it that is very, very self-serving. You know, he, he, he doesn't exactly not take the blame, but he kind of couches it in, in other things. And one of the great strokes of luck I had was finding his partner, I don't know his partner, partner, but the other executive on the movie, who's called mm. David Field, and they were equally in charge. And David Field wouldn't be involved with the book, fell out with Stephen Bach, and he was very interesting in giving another slant to the book, because the other great movie books would you will have read, um, Bonfire of the Vanities, the you know, not Bonfire of the Vanities, The Devil's Candy. About Julia, Bonfire, right? Julie Salomon, Salomon yeah. yeah. And there are several other books, but they are journalists who are impartial. And I'm not saying if you are part of a process, you can't write a book about it. I'm not saying you have to be impartial, but I think if you're not impartial, it's not quite as valuable somehow, which isn't to say the book isn't a lot of fun because it is, and I've read it, you know, a lot of times. But in terms, and so I wanted to put Chimino into context, particularly Stephen Bass book, he, he wasn't very experienced, which he admitted. So all the problems that came up, he talks about them as if like this is the first time in movie history that these amazing things happened, you know, mm -hmm. that there might be budget problems. I mean, there is no movie ever made that doesn't have some kind of budget problems. Chimino behaving badly on set, try working with Eric von Stroheim. You know, that's what directors do. They behave badly or they can behave badly. And as, as somebody said to me, if you want a pleasant experience on a movie, hire a Sunday school teacher to make it. You know, that's what it's, it's a battlefield often. And even if it's a pleasant experience, which sometimes it is, you know, there are a lot of battles along the way and the battles might be handled better by other people than Chimino. But, you know, David Lean on Ryan's daughter, you know, it was in principal photography for a year when there was that big storm sequence and he hung around in Ireland, but, you know, inevitably the storm didn't come. And he picked up the entire crew, flew them to South Africa. I mean, God knows how much that added to the budget. That's what they do. And the other thing that always surprises me is that people expect great artists to be nice people. I mean, I, you know, you think Picasso was a nice guy. I mean, I didn't know <laughs> Picasso, so maybe he was. I doubt it. I really doubt it. And in order to achieve a vision, you know, you have to fight for it. And if you fight for it, maybe 
people, not that many people fought quite as hard as Chimino, there is a trail of bleeding bodies behind you. Literally, in the case of David Lean, there was a, a <laughs> famous scene with uh, with a woman uh, in the train sequence in Dr. Zhivago where she fell on the tracks and had her leg cut off by the train. And Lean was sort of like, OK, clear that away. That's <laughs> up for the next shot. <laughs> collateral damage. Yeah. Probably yeah. only an extra. So therefore, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Or um, another one was uh, Sergio Leone when uh, he was shooting The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Oh, no. Um, Once Upon a Time in the West. And that famous Canadian actor with a scar who's who's one of the, the, the people waiting yeah. jumped out of a hotel window, killed himself. And Leone ran after the ambulance because he was wearing his costume and he wanted to get quick, get the costume. We can shoot, <laughs> we can shoot a reverse shot. We can put a put another a stand in it. And it's just like well, that's what they're like. Yeah, they're, they're focused on their vision. So, so let's go back a little bit to the to the beginning of Chimina and how he, I mean, like his family. I mean, this is the bit where I don't want to get to, into too much detail because of uh, of various surprises that sort of yeah, pop yeah. up. But uh, what was his sort of background? Where was he, he coming from? He came, he, he, he was born in Brooklyn. His parents were... Italian immigrants. I mean, I think they were like second generation, second, maybe third generation. Because one of the things I think is incredibly boring in biographies is when they go back to, you know, in 1820, his great, 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 I dump all that. So I just began with, with, with that. So when he was 10-ish, they moved out to Long Island, which was, which was, you know, safer, leafier, easier than Brooklyn. And they moved to a town called Westbury, which is about an hour out of New York on Long Island. And he had, well, as you know from the book, there are many different stories. And of course, the great thing about Chimino is there are many different stories about literally everything. (laughs) Um, And so he essentially came, he had two brothers, he was the eldest, and he grew up in a middle-class Italian family. They weren't particularly Italian. He didn't really speak Italian at all. And I don't think they spoke Italian at home. And his father was a music publisher and his mother was a seamstress who specialized in wedding dresses. And they had an utterly conventional, nice middle-class life. And so he goes into college and yep. uh, and then a career in advertising. Yes, he did. He he was a, he he did. Um, he went to the University of Michigan and did fine art, and then he went to Yale and did a postgrad course. Again, he always said he 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 did a master's in fine art and then changed and was doing a postgrad architecture degree, but nobody remembers that bit. Um, but he was a great, he was very, very visual. And at the University of Michigan, there was a sort of student magazine um, and he became the, the design director. And he, the, the, the four or five cover designs I could find designed by him are all really extraordinary, very, forward-looking and this is in the late in like 58 or so 59 
they looked forward to, you know, those designers in New York, like Milton Glaser or Paul Rand or Saul Bass. They were incredibly different from anything any uh, that, that had certainly been on the magazine before. And he painted all his life, well, he said he painted all his life. I couldn't track, nobody appeared to have seen any of the paintings. That's a typical Cimino thing. Um, and in fact, his nephew had some, and he gave them to me, um, black and white drawings, and they're wonderful, absolutely wonderful. So that was one of Cimino, and Cimino's thing about I was a child prodigy, which I don't suppose for a moment he was, but he was a brilliant artist. It's, it's so f interesting having to un, un disentangle this this character who's who's such a fabulist about himself. Yes. And I mean, you have at the very beginning of the book, I think a wonderful moment where you're kind of standing outside his house yeah, and, yeah. And wanting to get in. Yeah. But there's there's this feeling that there is a locked room. No, I love that's, that. There's, I... A, there's a straight metaphor, but it's actually literally yes, true as yes. well. And so we lived in that house for 40 something years. I didn't, I never did get into it, which I freely admit. Joanne, who owns the house, she lives in New York and doesn't like LA, but there was no way in the world she was going to let me go in the house. Um, so I didn't, but I did go and climb over the fence and take some photographs. Sorry, was and it, I lost the thread. Was it, was it a tall fence? It was, well, there were two fences. I had to get over the first fence. There's a long driveway leading up to more gates. But the story that I heard is that when he died, the house was just locked up. Nothing was touched. So it was like Miss Havisham in Great Expectations. Yeah, Miss Havisham's wedding cake. Exactly. And so that totally fascinated me, particularly and also the room. I mean... That was probably an exaggeration too, but who cares? It's a great story. And only now is Joanne doing something about the house and do you clearing think, it out. Do you think there's an opportunity there that at some point she'll get in touch with you and say, look, I found a load of stuff you might be interested when, in. When he hell freezes over. Uh, this, uh, as well, this idea uh, that, that Joanne said to, to you, or, or at least you you get this idea that she's the keeper of the flame. Oh, absolutely. But how is that flame being kept if she's not putting out her narrative, putting out her version of the story? I well, mean, she is a very, she always said, she talks in about Michael in the present tense. So she would say, Michael and I have never wanted a biography to be written. And it's true. And she has never sought any publicity at all for herself. She gave a few interviews around the time of Heaven's Gate because she was the producer. She has never been interviewed since then, hates LA, doesn't really have movie friends. And I, 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 like you, you're finding it odd that she doesn't want to correct the narrative, but she always says, I'm not going to correct these stories, which are all lies. Um, and what she does do is there are a lot of old Tremino scripts, and she goes to Europe sometimes to try because it, because he, 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 his career was resuscitated in France because in France they love all those kind of failed American directors like Sam Fuller or Nicholas Ray. I don't mean they're failed exactly, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So Europe is the only place you'll get it together. 
Um, and that's what she does. And I don't think with a great deal of success, but she was odd in that though she said she didn't want a biography, she did agree to see me often, but she never, I mean, I thought when I first met her or just before I first met her, that she she wanted she wanted to talk, but she didn't know it yet. Mm. Sadly, that turned out to be completely untrue. And she didn't want to talk. Though she did, I mean, I spent hours with her. So we did talk about all sorts of things. We talked about things other than Shimino, but she never really asked about the book. Mm. I sometimes told her who I was seeing, mm. and she would do a kind of huh. But she never really asked. So I thought maybe she wants to keep me close to keep an eye on me, but not really. Mm. And the one thing I asked her to do in that I knew she wasn't really, I mean, she did, of course she did tell me stuff. There, as you'll know, you, there are so many negative things about Chimino out there on the internet. People saying how ghastly he was, how awful he was. I mean, hundreds of them. And I asked her, if she would put me in touch with people who loved Chimino. And she didn't, she wouldn't. Mm. And I found the, I, I found five, six people, I'm sure there probably were more, but I couldn't find them, who did love him and who were part of his life in the last years in LA where he was sort of reclusive, but he did have friends and he did go out. And I talked to some people who really did, who worked with him often, and did love him, but I found them, she wouldn't even give me them. I mean, she mm. genuinely isn't interested. I don't mean she isn't interested in Chimino, she's genuinely not interested. And it is, to a normal person, like you and I, we are normal people, it is sort of slightly inexplicable why she wouldn't, but like a lot of things with Chimino and her, I can't explain it, I just put it out there and people must make their own minds up. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, if you were in charge of somebody's legacy, you would you would want to correct that legacy sure, and sure. preserve the good stuff. Not and, at all, you know. not at all. And the and the people he he was friendly with in LA, because he was such a great compartmentalizer. None of them knew each other, mm. and he would meet. He had he he loved restaurants. He would have restaurants for each of them. This is for, I'm talking four or five people who didn't know mm. each other. One person he would always go to this restaurant with, another person he'd always go to that restaurant with. So he kept them apart. And the bizarre thing is that none of them ever met Joanne. Even a journalist, a film journalist called F.X. Feeney, who was incredibly helpful, who sadly died, he had been friends with Chimino for 30 years and had never met Joanne. So everybody was kept separate. And was it was it possible then that Joanne didn't even know that FX Feeney existed as a friend on could the compartmentalization? No, no, she typical of Joanne. I said I was seeing FX Feeney. She she of course knew who he was, mm. and she 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 was very you know he's got an axe to grind. He's always after something, and in fact, F, you know, he knew Chimino after Heaven's Gate. And there was nothing to be after because Chimino's career was in free fall. You know, if you wanted to butter up to somebody, you might butter up 
Tarantino or Brad Pitt, you wouldn't butter up Cimino because he could not open any doors for you. You know, you go to a restaurant and say, I'm a friend of Michael Cimino. They're not giving you a table. It was very odd that she, because everybody has betrayed her and she will mm. certainly think that I have betrayed her. Do you think she'll read the book? Well, that's interesting. I, when like four or five weeks before the book came out, I sent all the people I talked to a, a picture of the cover and just to say, you know, thank you for your contribution. The book's coming out in a month. And I sent it to her and I've never heard anything. But, you know, if suddenly the phone rang, it's Joanne Corelli. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised. She is very unpredictable. And she, I mean, I think, and lots of other people do, I think it is pretty sympathetic to him, even though I don't hide the bad things. No, absolutely. I thought I, I came away with it with especially that corrective that you do as you go through Heaven's Gate. But let's come to that in a minute, because I want right. to um, Clint Eastwood. Well, first of all, he doesn't re he starts his career as a director, really, as a writer and then yeah. and then moves into directing, yeah. Yeah. which is kind of, again, seems a slightly odd path, considering that he's sort of coming from the visual arts, yeah. that he should start writing. So that's a a skill that he has um, that maybe some people from that area, that world wouldn't necessarily automatically have. And then his first directing job is uh, Thunderbolt and Light. Yeah. Thunderbolt and Light. Foot Thunderbolt and Light. With Jeff Bridges and yeah. Clint Eastwood. Which actually is a, it's a genre movie. It is, it is Chimino's touch of evil, a kind of genre piece that he turns into something remarkable. It might even be my favourite film of his. But the weird thing was that he was one of the most famous commercials directors in New York. He made a lot of money, but that doesn't have traction in Hollywood. It wasn't like England, where Adrian Lyne, Putnam, Ridley Scott... Uh, got into movies because the the worlds of, because England and London is so small the worlds of advertising and film are kind of in, intricately linked whereas in then certainly in the in the sixties in all commercials were shot in New York so LA was a long way away and being a commercials director didn't open any doors at all so he was remarkable in that way and I asked a couple of people who had worked with him on commercials in the 60s and knew that world really well. I asked them both if they could think of anybody else from commercials who had made a huge success in Hollywood and they couldn't think of anybody. So he, Joanne said to him, though she denied saying it to him, but everybody else says she said it to him, the only way you're going to be able to make a movie is write a movie for a star and get it to them. And he wrote Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, his agency, William Morris also representing Clint Eastwood. And it got sent to Clint Eastwood, who loved it. I mean, Clint Eastwood is partly because he has the power to do it. He always took chances on people, always. He just had a gut instinct and did it. And Cimino, with really not a lot of cards in his hand, said Clint Eastwood couldn't have the movie unless Cimino directed it. But he, but Tremaine, um, Eastwood worked with quite a lot of first-time directors, and he took the chance, and he gave he gave Chimino a bit of a test by getting him to do the second half of Magnum Force, 
because John Milius had was writing it, but halfway through he was offered the job of directing a movie he had written, which was called Dillinger, mm. um, with Warren Oates and Richard Dreyfus. So he jumped ship, and Chimino got, um, sorry, Eastwood got Chimino um, to rewrite. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And that got made. Um, and then they did Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And, and he had a very happy experience on it because he, Clint Eastwood liked him. He knew that Clint Eastwood sack, would sack him if he didn't like him a few days in. And he behaved well. And it's a great film. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's because he had someone, you know, the, 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 he didn't have the whip hand, basically? Would you think that that uh, contributed to it, you know, that discipline, perhaps? Yes. I mean, I, 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 but, it, but it's entirely a Chimino movie. <laughs> and it wasn't recut. It wasn't Clint Eastwood liked it. And I suppose for the first and probably only time, he had to behave himself because he couldn't do his first film and get sacked off it. And in a way, that proved a really good calling card for him for the Deer Hunter that he had. Absolutely, the, he had this film made under budget, in, yeah. on schedule. Yeah. So, so the Deer Hunter. I mean, like with many of these stories that that come up, there are a lot of contested versions of sort of how the script was yes. written, who who did it. The idea of Russian roulette, I think, seems to have you know success has a thousand fathers. Yes, exactly. That that is the the film as well which is which is sort of like the absolute pinnacle and high point yes of his his commercial success yes what did you find out that sort of cut through those those differing conflicting well his stories were to be taken with a giant pinch of salt as i could put it together he'd written a movie called silo running which was a rather good science fiction movie in about 1970 and he had co-written it with a writer called Derek Washburn, who was sort of a friend of his. And then he went to Hollywood and he, he was called in for a meeting with EMI, a British company. He was offered a script that EMI had had called The, the Man Who Came to Play, which was a really weird script about a couple of hustlers who are in Vietnam and they play Russian roulette for money and they somehow cheat. I can't now remember the precise details. It's not political. The Vietnam War is a kind of backdrop. And the two guys 
the two hustlers. They're like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, um, or Danny Glover and Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. So it is, it is, if you can imagine such a thing, a light-hearted Russian roulette movie. And he came back to AMI and said that he didn't want to do the film, that film. He had another idea he wanted, which used just used the Russian roulette idea, nothing else in the movie. And he pitched what was essentially the deer hunter, the story of the deer hunter. It took him an hour. Marion Rosenberg, who was head of um, EMI in America, who I talked to a lot, she loved it. She absolutely loved it. And it went to Barry Spikings and Michael Dealey, uh, who had produced The Italian Job and all sorts of things, who would try to break into America. And they loved it too. And it went into production really, really quickly. The thing that Cimino didn't say was that after they'd sent him the original larky Russian roulette script, he had brought Derek Washburn in to do it with him. And they put the pitch together. I also saw Derek Washburn. They, they put the pitch together, but Tremino didn't say that. And then the problem with it was that, and by the way, Tremino never, ever, ever mentioned the original script where he got the Russian roulette idea from, ever. He was a great credit grabber. Um, and Derek, so EMI commissioned the movie, but for tax reasons, it had to go into production within about three months. So like no script, incredibly complicated film, three months. In fact, they in the end, they it was five months before it was made. And he's, the problem was he had to prepare the film locations etc 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 and he said it might be a good idea to bring in another writer who he happened to know called Derek Washburn but he never told EMI that he'd already worked on it so uh, Derek came out to LA they they you know worked out in more detail the, the, the original pitch was pretty detailed anyway so Tremino goes off and Derek Washburn writes the script I mean, it is a bizarre story in terms of timing. He, the, the contract was signed for De Derek Washburn was hired on December the 6th, 1977, or maybe 76, I can't quite remember. And within six weeks, he wrote the script. Chimino came back to LA and sacked him. And Chimino's story was that the script was so terrible, he had to rewrite it. But I've seen that original draft six weeks after Derek Washburn was hired, and it is more or less the same as the final script. So Chimino couldn't have rewritten it. Um, so they sacked Derek Washburn, he and Joanne, went back to New York. He allegedly rewrote the script, which I don't believe he did. And he, 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 you know, he was very cruel, Chimino, and he gave interviews saying, you know, Derek Washburn was drunk all the time, the script was complete garbage. So, and then he makes the movie. And there were endless problems with the movie. But as I said, there are endless problems with all movies. And, you know, it was difficult shooting. He took, he was incredibly slow. But as I say in the book, he wasn't slow. He took as much time. So it wasn't like he tried to do it in a day, but it ran over. So it took two days. He knew it was going to take two days, even though the schedule only had given him one day. 
she was absolutely meticulous. And in if you read both Heaven's Gate and Deer Hunter scripts, every single thing is covered. If the script mm. says, you know, he looks over his shoulder briefly, he looks over his shoulder briefly. I mean, he was an amazingly meticulous filmmaker. I think that I think, as you say, that's quite that's quite common for yeah. for filmmakers to to push. I remember an interview with Michael Mann, and he was in the middle of shooting Heat, and yeah. someone, some sort of production executive, came into the, his trailer while he was having lunch and said, "You know, we really need to 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 speed this up, Michael." Where and Mann just immediately said, "Right, okay, reset everything. We're going to go again. We're going to do the. We're going to go back to the last shot." Yeah. Yeah. As a way of sort of saying to the executive, this is a Michael Mann picture. I'm yeah. going to do this exactly, yeah. exactly as yeah. I want to do yeah. it. So that Chimino-esque sort of perfectionism, I yes. just think. Again, it's, it, it, again, Stephen Bach talked about it as if it was the weirdest thing in the world. But as you rightly say, that's what they do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, That example that you use as well uh, of David Lean, it's, it's sort of, uh, that story is told so many times of the sort of the director waiting for the right wave to yeah, crash. Yeah. I remember Marlon Brando for One-Eyed Jacks also, that was sort of like yeah. the story on that film, that he was waiting for the right wave or the right, right cloud to pass. I'm sure it's true. And again, that's what they do. He's already on pre-production for Heaven's Gate, when uh, the deer hunter comes out and sort that's of that's right, yes, has a sweep of the Oscars. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, that that gives the the impression that this this guy's snowballing. This guy's going to be this this is going to be like a, a, a momentous career. What what do you feel sort of goes wrong with Heaven's Gate? I, I f- from the book, I got the impression that it was almost like a a, a loss of nerve on the part of Chimino. Like post the film, the, the film was made. The film yeah. is, is going through its edit and all the rest of it, yeah. and and then there's just this sort of like moment where he kind of blinks. Well, what? I mean, he had amazing confidence in himself and a kind of fuck you attitude to everybody else. And I mean, it's it's really too well known to go into. You know how it went over budget and you know shot for seven months and all that. And the the shenanigans with United Artists to get his cut of three hours, 40 minutes. So it opened. So we didn't lose nerve before that. When the movie opened, it got the most, literally the most vicious reviews any movie has ever had, as far as I can tell. Um, Up there with with, um, Verhoeven's Showgirls, perhaps. But the Vincent Canby review in the New York Times said, the failure of Heaven's Gate is so great that you can only assume Chimino made with a pact made a pact with the devil to achieve the success of the Deer Hunter and its payback time. I mean, vicious reviews. And at this the premiere, you know, everybody was fleeing at the end. And then he lost his nerve and said to United Artists he'd like to recut the movie with the usual, you know, we didn't have enough time to cut it, i.e. a year wasn't long enough. And that was a huge failure of nerve, partly because, and United Artists agreed to it, but it was entirely Chimino's desire, if anybody had thought about it. I mean, Chimino obviously panicked, and I can understand sort of why he panicked, um, except he wasn't a panicky guy, but he panicked. What they were, and of course, you know, 
United artists knew what was, they'd seen the stuff, they knew what was there. And if you cut an hour out of it, it would be the same, but shorter. There weren't any new sequences. There wasn't this, there wasn't that. And when I saw, which is what I saw first, the second cut at two hours 40, I thought when, if I ever saw the long version, I might understand the story a bit better, i.e. what is John Hurt doing there? And when I saw the long version, I didn't understand anymore because there was no, no sequences were cut from the long version. They were just all made shorter. And mm. the battle at the end, instead of being an hour, was cut down to half an hour. But the story is exactly the same. And when the reviews came out, one of them, Stanley Kaufman or somebody said, this is like a fat man who's gone on a diet but doesn't look any better. And that I think that's true. And I certainly don't think the two hours, 40 minutes is a kind of travesty. It's just shorter. And Chimino sort of made out that it had been butchered, but in fact, he cut it. And the failure of nerve was simply that to the industry, it looked like United Artists and Chimino had spent seven months and spent $44 million to make this masterpiece, but they suddenly agreed with the critics that it was terrible. So it became a kind of laughing stock. And if they had stuck to their guns, stuck with the three hour, 40 minute version, it wouldn't have made any money, but they would have retained their dignity. You know, they would, they would have had the courage of their convictions. And I think it was a big mistake of Chimino and very unusual for him to lose his nerve. Do you think he, he, he deeply regretted that or, or saw it in that way? Or, or... I don't think, I, I just actually don't know that because he never really right. talked much about it. Right. I, I don't actually know. So Heaven's Gate, the narrative becomes that it destroys United Artists yeah. and it and it's blamed for a lot of things, which you you kind of dispute, right? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it isn't just I take a different view. I found the stuff. I mean, in the in the year that Heaven's Gate, the year after Heaven's Gate was released, United Artists made twenty two million dollar profit that had a lot of other flops. And the story that it bankrupted the studio is just completely untrue. What he could be accused of is making United Artists slightly lose their appetite for filmmaking because it was such a horrible experience. But United Artists was, was bought by a company called Transamerica in the late 60s for $180 million. And it was sold to MGM for $380 million. You know, that is not a studio going bankrupt, but no. yet the myth continued and still continues. And it, it just isn't true. Do you think there was a sort of a night of the long knives for Chimino because he'd sort of made some enemies? He, oh, he yes, made his absolutely. Enemies along the way? Absolutely. And I think a lot of things were blamed on Chimino. The fact that all those auteur directors, Bogdanovich, Coppola, not Scorsese so much, um, Robert Altman, after those early successes like Last Picture Show, Easy Rider, I've now run out of ones, but but you'll know them. Taxi Driver and Taxi Driver. Well, as I say, Scorsese was always different, mm. but the movies they made after those first cheap successes, obviously they were more expensive. They had more power, and you know they all flopped. Uh, you know the movies that Chimino did. I mean Chimino Coppola did like The Conversation. I mean, the difference is The Conversation is a great, great, great movie, but it flopped. But he did some not good movies, as did Altman, 
um, as did Brian De Palma. Even even Spielberg has 1941. Exactly, exactly. Um, So, and Cimino was sort of blamed for the fact that other people had failed. And it was easier to like put it on one guy. Yeah, it was sort of like, the, okay, let's put all these geniuses back in their box. Again, going exactly. back to Orson Welles, a little bit like RKO uh, saying, you know, we're not going to have any genius anymore. Yeah. You know, um, so his post Heaven's Gate career is, it, it make, makes for kind of sad reading. Although yeah. I I quite like Desperate Hours and I quite like... Um, wow. Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Year of the Dragon is... is uh... Lots of people love Year of the Dragon. Right. And at least it's a proper Chimino movie, even though I think it's got a lot of things wrong with it. Um, lots of people love it. And I can see why they love it. It's a proper Chimino movie. I think Mickey Rourke is terrible in it. The Chinese Girlfriend is absolutely terrible in it. But it has a lot of great things in it. John Lone is wonderful. The shootout in the restaurants is wonderful. The battle on the bridge at the end is it's full of great things. And the Desperate Hours, no. <laughs> no, well, I think that the problem with Desperate Hours was he had somehow lost his feel. You know, the script was written for a the main character, not Mickey Rourke, but the father of the family that Mickey Rourke invades was a like mid thirties American chaser after the American dream. And he was played by Anthony Hopkins. I mean, it just doesn't work. And the house they live in, which was built in a studio is the most grandiose house. You can't quite believe they would. I mean, I didn't mean they were poor, but it's like a castle. I mean, it is huge. And it just, I just didn't believe a word of it. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, it, Desperate Hours, it was a novel, it was a play, it was a movie directed by William Wyler. It wasn't crappy material. Other people had made good stuff out of it. But he just, he, he, I, he, he couldn't, because I think, I mean, Year of the Dragon, he was more or less in control of. The other movies, he certainly didn't have Final Cut. They were pretty conventional movies, the last three, but somehow he just couldn't work unless it was all him. Mm. He, he, he just, you know, other people like Orson Welles. I mean, when I compared Thunderbolt and Lightfoot to Touch of Evil, the difference was that Thunderbolt and Lightwood, Lightfoot was Chimino's first movie. Touch of Evil was Orson Welles's 12th movie, whatever it was. But very cleverly, he managed to make it an Orson Welles movie. He rewrote it. And it was an Orson Welles movie, and people love it. It's a great movie, even though, of course, it was recut. But it wasn't It wasn't recut like Beneficent Ambersons. It was tinkered with by the studio, but it's still a masterpiece. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, they just couldn't do that. And he had, what was it, The Sicilian as well, which was... Uh, well, uh, The Sicilian is really, really a dreadful movie. Right. Desperate Hours. I think is a terrible movie. Sun Chaser, the last movie, has some really good things in it. They all they all flopped. The Year of the Dragon probably just about made money. The others all were huge flops. I mean, Sun Chaser, which cost $30 million, grossed $30,000. I mean, it was literally hardly shown. And it's not a terrible movie. And, and he was, I mean, 
I don't know. It's like usually in Hollywood, there's they 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 love their second acts. You yeah. know, they love their live their their comebacks, and you yeah. know the the career of Mel Gibson is almost entirely made of, of comebacks and sex second sure. acts. Um, but nobody wanted to do that for Chimino, or Chimino himself was just uh, highly resistant and self-destructive. Well, I don't think he was actually offered anything mm. after Sun Chaser in 1996. He wrote a lot of projects, though who knows how many. Which is in this famous locked room. that we Exactly, exactly. And, you know, he turned some of them into novels, he wrote novels and turned some of them into screenplays. Joanne said it was impossible to know because there were so many different versions of everything. And Man's Fate, which is a big epic set in the Chinese Revolution in whenever it was, in the 30s. I told you I only knew about movies. Chinese history is beyond me. You know, he did go some way to getting it, but he never got the money. And the people I talked to said, you know, he wouldn't compromise on the budget. Even then, he, you know, if he didn't get enough money to make it, he wouldn't make it. And it's sort of impressive. I th- and I think possibly, though he would never admit it, he was kind of frightened of doing another movie. Somebody told me that Irvin Kirshner had wanted to do a movie with him. And he was a director, but he was going to produce the movie. And Chimino wouldn't even meet him. Mm. You know, he had lost his confidence in some way. I mean, not surprisingly. Mm. Mm. And and he what did what didn't happen to him was what like what happened to Robert Altman, who was out in the wilderness for a long, long time and made some pretty terrible movies, and suddenly came back with the player, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, the player and, and after, then after, shortcuts. And okay. shortcuts, the player. And he came back. At the, that was a, either a second act or a third act or maybe a fourth act. But he came back and did critically well-received movies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, after he's sort of out of the picture when it, in terms of making films or getting yeah. films made, then you have this chapter in his life which has... I don't know. It, it sort of he becomes you know locked in his Xanadu. There's the plastic surgery. There's the the cross dressing. Yeah. There's also like a reference that that is made. I think you quote his memoir where he's talking about anorexia. Yeah. Um, and so that so there was all this sort of adding to the legend, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and I mean I that think- that I mean he was. You've seen the photographs. He was always a kind of chunky guy and mm. always had. I mean, weight problems, but his weight would go up and down. Um, he became literally like a stick insect or a chipolata stick. You know, he was he. And the thing about anorexia, the anorexia. I mean, that book, which was only published in France, that memoir. I think he 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 was doing a kind of eight and a half, writing about a director called Michael Cimino, but quite whether the Michael Cimino in the book was Michael Cimino, it's hard to tell. It's like, a, it's like a weird dream, the whole book. It's not long, it's about 50 pages. It's like a weird dream. And obviously some of it is true and some of it isn't true. And it's hard to tell which, which bits are which. And the drinking, I mean, there are, people said, who I talked to in Newham well said, you know, he had a big drink problem. Mm. Other people, I mean, Joanne said he never drank at all. Somebody else told me he never drank. So as usual, he was 
showing different personas, personae. So how true that book is, I don't really know, and nobody will, will ever know, but it's rather kind of gripping. And he talks about suicide and full of bizarre, but it's, it kind of rambles like all over the place. It, it isn't like a coherent narrative, mm -hmm. but it's fascinating. Yeah, just like his whole life isn't like yes, a coherent narrative. Exactly, exactly. You know, and and uh, somebody visits his house at one point and, go, and opens a fridge, and there's just there's nothing in the yes, fridge except. Yes, that's like a, a great story: a half-eaten yeah. sandwich and a half bottle of champagne. That's it in a whole fridge, and not a fridge like you have or I have. One of those Beverly Hills fridges, which is the size of a room. I, it's just, it it it's just uh, amazing. And then there's this the thing about the cross dressing that comes in. Yeah, and his, uh, you know, what nowadays there would be something, uh, you know, a context in which to place it of yeah. you know, gender fluidity. Yeah, but he's built himself up as this real machismo. Yeah, uh, sure, 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 sure. Uh, uh, Endlessly and, talked about his girlfriends, but nobody ever met any of them. Yes. Yeah, and that that was uh, the, there was one reference to girls, like almost everywhere he goes. Like when he's shooting yes. uh, the Vietnam sequences in the Deer Hunter, it's like, oh That's yeah, right. I had a couple of girlfriends, and yeah, you know, yeah. it's like a girl in every port, a but, girl in every port, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I mean, and I don't think there was anybody in his life really apart from Joanne. But again, were they lovers? Were they whatever? Who knows? I mean, that's what's so fascinating about the book is after reading it, usually I would be frustrated if I got to the end of a biography and I felt like I really don't know this guy at all. But here, the really don't know this guy at all is the essential ingredient yeah, exactly. this guy which is. is. Which is just as well. Yeah. <laughs> what did, um, when you came away from it, having sort of researched it and, and having, having got to know some of these people around him, do you, did you feel like, and considering the fact that, uh, you know, he, he'd had this fearsome reputation, yeah. did you feel much more sympathy for him than, than, than you had done initially? Yes, I did. I did. I think he was a sort of flawed, I mean, are we all? But mm. he was sort of the, the, his own destruction. And I, I, I mean, I was really moved by it. And I was moved by the woman I talked to his mentor in the cross-dressing world, which I didn't make any comment on because nobody wants to hear me talking about cross-dressing. I just, it was a sort of dreamlike thing. And I just put her narrative together, didn't say what I thought, I just put it out there. You know, and I, I think her relationship with him was rather moving. Mm, yeah, no, there's a beautiful quote you have from her where she says, you know, she was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. Mm. You know, it's like... That maybe that was who you were supposed to be, man. Yes. Maybe that's who you should yeah, have gone yeah, with. Yeah. So it was a sort of sad end, but I put in, I mean, did I exaggerate it a bit? Maybe an uplift ending, which was, you know, the resuscitation of Heaven's Gate. And of course, mm. it is a great movie. And it yeah. has got resuscitated, and that was wonderful. And he was immensely moved and touched by the reception it got. Yeah, and and he, I, I, who can blame him after 30 years in the wilderness yeah and being sort of being proved right about something as well yes um when he when he gets the reward it, but at the same time there's a sort of grace note of him receiving the the award at Locarno yeah and and kind of sabotaging his own Q&A yeah. with uh, that is look it's on YouTube 
it mm. is hilarious. All right, okay. And I just basically that, that what I did was a kind of transcript of the footage. I look at it on YouTube. It is hilarious. I don't mean you're laughing at him, but he's so eccentric, so bizarre, and very lovable. <laughs> what he, just what put up, people just put up Lucar Lucano Cimino. You'll find it. It lasts about an hour. It's fabulous. I cut it down a lot, obviously, but it's wonderful. And the thing about the man in the wheelchair, if you remember that bit, it's all yes. it's wonderful. Bonkers. Yeah. And the guy who mentions um who mentions Joanne's husband. David, David Mansfield. Exactly. And he's like, ah, don't want to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Um, listen, Charles. Um I ask everybody to recommend a film book for us. What film book would you like to recommend to our listeners? Does it have to be one? No, it can be as many as you like. It's not like Desert Island Disc. I tell you, I was thinking about because you said, I think there are two not there are two fiction ones. One is Played as It Lays by Joan Didion, which is an extraordinary book from about 1970. I mean, Joan Didion was absolutely part of. Hollywood they lived there she and her husband and though I think she's a wonderful novelist she was a terrible screenwriter A Star is Born the Chris Christopherson version yeah. yes terrible screenwriter um, but then so was Gore Vidal you know that's novelists for you um, anyway Played As It Lays is about an actress married to a director who has a who's making a film and has a kind of long nervous breakdown it is abs and it is LA in the 70s the drugs the freeways the independent, it's wonderful. So that's one. The other fiction is Scott Fitzgerald's Pat Hobby stories. You ever read those? No, no. Oh, I get them. They're, they're in what Penguin do. There's in one volume. There's about 10 short stories about this guy called Pat Hobby, who was a drunken failed screenwriter, i.e. Scott Fitzgerald. And they're very, <laughs> he's always scrambling to get another job as a screenwriter. And it's sad and it's very funny. And I think it's it, it's better than The Last Tycoon, which is another great movie. Okay, there, there are those. Um, I think, though, I dare say everybody will say this, I think Peter Biskin's Easy Riders, Raging Bulls is just a great, wonderful book, which I obviously used a lot. Wonderful book. And Peter Biskin helped me a bit. He's a very nice guy. Julia Phillips's You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again is the best scurrilous gossipy book i think that's it brilliant i brilliant. could come up with hundreds more but i won't there are some good recommendations there joe yeah. didian I, I love that novel yeah. it's such a great great novel although i did like um panic in needle park which is one of her, her screenplays no i agree panic in needle park is probably the best of them probably yeah. the best of them did you see up close and personal yeah yeah no, no oh sorry no. i'm going to do one more book sorry go ahead her husband john gregory dunn he, uh, bizarrely, in the late 60s, by 67, he asked Dick Zanuck at 20th Century Fox if he could come and just sit at the studios and write a book about what was going on. It is, it's called The Studio. It is hilarious. The full story of Dr. Doolittle. The, it's, get it. It is absolutely wonderful. Oh, brilliant! I'm da oh, that's going straight on my list. Yeah. I, I, I've heard, I've heard of some of those, but so the, the F. Scott Fitzgerald. I remember talking to James Ivory a couple yeah. of years ago, and he, I asked him 
if there was any film that any adaptation that he wished he'd done and he yeah. that was one of his uh he he'd been working on that for for ages and he just never wow. came yeah. came off brilliant so it's time i read them yeah, <laughs> having, you should you should super listen charles thank you so much for talking to me and congratulations on the book chimino is a brilliant read i really yeah. enjoyed oh, well it. thank you i i really enjoyed it i love doing i mean i enjoyed talking to you but i love doing the book and good luck if you can cut this interview down into anything kind of that has a narrative through line so but that's <laughs> your, that's your problem not mine So that was my conversation with Charles. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. It was really great to to hear his his view on Chimino and a figure. Honestly, I, I we tried not to spoil the book because there are some twists and turns in the book, which uh, which which left me very very much surprised. I don't know if you come away from the book with a, any sort of certainty about who Michael Chimino exactly was. But in a way, that's kind of the beauty of it. The locked room, the the enigma wrapped in a puzzle, buried in a mystery. I'm not sure what the, the quote about Byron uh, uh, was originally, but it's something along those lines. His recommended books, uh, there were too many for me to list here, but it was uh, Joan Didion's Play It Like It, Play It, Play It As It Lays, uh, which is a novel, which is it's great to have someone uh, recommend some novels as well. Uh, Easy, Riding, Easy Riders uh, Raiding Bulls, Peter Biskind. The F. Scott Fitzgerald stories, which I'm going to look up myself and, and dip into. Um, and I think there was John Griffin Dunn's The Studio as well, which I think has been uh, has been nominated before as a recommended book. So that's that's super. That's great. I'm not entirely sure what our next episode is going to be. We're going to have we've got a, a Mario Bava um, biography coming up. Uh, not necessarily biography, actually. Maybe just a critical study of Mario Bava. We're going to be looking at that. Uh, there are some other. Uh, there are some other people who I've um, who I've contacted and who were arranged to to book. Um, one of them is George Stevens Jr., uh, a, a wonderful and historic one of the founding members of the AFI, the American Film Institute, and. A, a, I'm currently reading his memoir in preparation for the interview, and it is riveting, absolutely riveting. It's a real honor to be able to talk to such an important and significant figure in the world of cinema. Okay, so uh, I guess I've talked for enough. Um, I don't want to try your patience too much, so I will simply thank Ali Harwood for his artwork. I shall also thank Elliot Atkins for his uh music uh which is which is always always perfect and um i will thank you too listener for uh for staying until the end if indeed you're you're still here <laughs> and until next week please take care
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.